You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Good to be with you here this Sunday. If uh, you're a guest among us and I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful to be with you. It is a new year. We have a new building reopened in here. Um, Even better, we have a new opportunity to use the bathroom indoors now. Uh, So God has been kind to us, given us his favor. But it's also a time for a new series that we're gonna begin here this week entitled Seven Marks of a Disciple. So if you have a Bible with you, I would love for you to turn with me starting in Matthew chapter 10. That's where we're gonna begin. We're also gonna look at Luke 14, right there in your New Testament, Matthew 10, Luke 14, where will be seven marks of a disciple. I have been waiting a long time to preach through this series. Um, my hope and my prayer is that over the next seven weeks, the Lord will use this time to really help focus and form us into more fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is a series targeting the idea of discipleship. That's a word that's tossed around. If you've been around church any amount of time, you've probably heard the word disciple, either as a noun of the 12 or used as a verb, go and make disciples. It's the epicenter of our mission statement here at Northway. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Straight out of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, it's it's the idea of disciple making. But here's the deal. And I'm thinking as, as Northway Church, it's really hard to try to aim at something when you don't really understand what that something is. Um, And until we are able to uh, more intentionally define, according to the scriptures, what a disciple is, we'll never know how to either A, be one, or B, go and make some. And so that's the hope of this series, is that we can work through a, a formation process of understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, when we use that term disciple, it is all throughout the scriptures. Um, It is used 290 times in the New Testament. It finds its origin in the Old Testament. In Jewish culture, a disciple or disciples were known as Talmudim. um, And they were ones who usually would follow after a rabbi. And uh, the word disciple in Hebrew literally means learner means student, means pupil, means follower. And and that's what they would do. Now, we're gonna look here later on in the series exactly what that looked like in early Jewish culture to even understand what it meant for Jesus. But this became a prominent term and association for Jesus's followers. They were disciples because they were learners of Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. When used in a generic sense, the term disciple indicates one whom you study under, one whom you identify your primary allegiance with. And so in that sense, it could be said of of all of us that we're being discipled by something or someone all the time. If you sit under social media long enough to learn from it, that you become like it, you're a disciple of social media. If you sit under your parents 
teaching and education and formation of your life. Long enough, you become a disciple of your parents. If your professors at school, your teachers and the education system, political figures, whatever it may be, anywhere where we spend a concentrated amount of time seeking to learn from and be like we are being disciples of said thing. Now, whatever it is, ultimately what you learn from is who you become. And, and, and in this sense, in the scriptures, Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector, understood what it meant to be a disciple better than anybody. And when he uses this term in his gospel, in his letters, his letter here, he usually uses the term in one of two ways. One of those we see is in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, when Jesus says these words, "'Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because my yoke's easy, my burden is light.'" That word learn is the word disciple in Greek. It's the word disciple, uh, one who learns from. Jesus is saying, you've been learning from a lot of religious leaders for a long time. And they've put a lot of heavy weights on you of the law. Stuff that you could never do in your own flesh. You have fallen short of the glory of God. And they have put this undue burden on you that you cannot fulfill. So I'm inviting you to abandon them and come learn from me. Come follow me because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I came to fulfill the law for you. And so one sense in which Matthew records this idea of a learner is that of being a disciple ourselves, that we're to be disciples of Jesus. But even later in Matthew, Matthew records Jesus's words at the end of his earthly ministry, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And behold, I'm gonna be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus bids, and Matthew records here, the idea of disciples, not only be a disciple, but we've been commissioned by Jesus himself to go make disciples. It doesn't end on us. It ends in multiplication and reproduction of followers of Jesus. So in both those passages, we're told to first be one, and then we're told to go make them. But here's where it's gotten confusing, if I can just honest experience, and maybe you can identify. In our westernized Christian culture, many of our subcultures, we've, we've gotten vague on what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus Christ. In some ways, we've reduced the Christian faith down to just believing in Jesus Christ. And absolutely, that is the essential act that we must transfer over in terms of our salvation. Salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, even the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 asked Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? And he said, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the essence of where our found, foundation of our faith begins is transferring trust and belief to the work of Jesus on the cross. And so that is our salvation by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, no doubt. However, Somehow along the way, we've kind of reduced the experience of following Jesus down to simply walking an aisle, praying a prayer, grabbing hold of our religious hell insurance, attending church, and living however else we want to the other six days. And, and, and yet what's happened in that, we, 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 
we in some ways kind of reduce this version of discipleship because we want it to be palatable to the non-believers and the skeptics around us. We want them to taste what we've tasted, but we feel like we have to kind of bait them in sometimes uh, in order to meet them where we're at. And so we soften the gospel message. We soften the costs that are involved with allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we begin dangling carrots in front of people uh, that are targeted at their felt needs. Like, come follow Jesus and you'll receive streets of gold as if the end game is a physical geography and not the presence of Christ. Or, you know, come to our church because we've got great programming and it's gonna be accessible. And listen, as much as I love and I'm excited about our children's building, our Christian faith doesn't rest on brick and mortar. There is something happening in that brick and mortar that's pointing people towards a lifelong trajectory of following Jesus. But what does that mean? There's a lot of ways that we could explore this. And I'm so thankful because early on, uh, when I started seminary, one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Mark Bailey, who would later become one of the presidents of Dallas Seminary, he had done his dissertation work in the area of discipleship. And he really wanted to wrestle with this question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And he recognized there are lots of ways you could do this. We could look at the parables of Jesus. We could look at the, the, um, the miracles of Jesus. We could look at kind of the lab lecture components of Jesus and his followers, what he did there, and try to derive some sort of method out of this. But what's interesting is when he sat down with me and started explaining this to me, and eventually he wrote a book on it, uh, called To Follow Him, of which this whole series is gonna be based in right here, according to the scriptures though, is he found that there were actual places in the gospels where Jesus just came out and said, if you do this, then you are a disciple of mine. If you do not do this, you cannot be my disciple." And what you find when you survey those statements, there's about five locations in the gospels, but seven statements where Jesus comes out and tells us, this is what a disciple is. And this idea so fascinated me, it ended up transforming my whole trajectory of my life of what it meant to not only be a disciple, but what the target is in the commission for me to go make disciples. Who are we actually producing according to Jesus? And so in this series, here's what I want you to know. This is not methodology. This is not Shea Sumlin's hot take on here's the newest curriculum or do these seven things. And then you'll, this is simply Jesus helping to bring clarity for us of what he meant by being a disciple, not just for a season, but for the rest of our lives. And and so here's where we're gonna go. Seven chief marks, seven chief characteristics. And here's kind of the order that I'm gonna teach these in. Number one, starting this week, is a characteristic or mark of disciple of those of us by, who, who follow Jesus by loving Jesus, loving Jesus. And as we'll see this week, those who have a supreme and incomparable love of Jesus Christ above any other love. Next week, we'll see the idea of those who are abiding in his word, what it looks like when we have God's word become the chief governing voice over our lives that is superior to any other voice of counsel in our life. That is one of the marks of those who are following Jesus. They listen to his word and obey it. Third, we'll see, is the idea of denial of self, of denying self, of denying 
us as the center of our lives, that we are not on the throne of our lives, Jesus is. And the sooner that we can empty ourselves of us, the more quickly we'll be filled with who Christ is. And this should be a mark or a characteristic of one of Jesus' disciples. Fourth will be the idea of a life of reconciling through the cross, that we will begin to see all of life through the grid of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that we live a cross-centered life, daily reconciling ourselves through the work of Christ on the cross. And then fifth, we'll look at the mark of that of imitating Jesus, of what it looks like to actually walk in his steps. We'll look at first century Judaism and what, what was rabbinic followership or discipleship did it look like that helps us understand what Jesus meant when Jesus then came up to the disciples on the shores of Galilee and said, follow me. And what it looks like to actually imitate Jesus as we walk in his footsteps. Six, we'll look at the mark of stewarding his treasures, of of relinquishing the rights that we have to what God actually owns that have been put on loan to us that we might steward the resources that he's given us for his glory. Jesus, out of his own lips, will say, this is one of the characteristics of my disciples. And then lastly, what it ultimately looks like for us to be reflecting Christ's love to the world around us who so desperately needs to see and believe upon Jesus Christ. And so by God's grace, my hope, my prayer, these statements that Jesus makes, they have changed my life. And I pray that not only in this series, but for the rest of your days, your life will be transformed as well. So y'all ready to dive in? Let's go Mark 1 right here. The first characteristics actually in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We're gonna pick up in verse 34, but just so you know some context here. In Matthew 10, Jesus is about to send out his, his 12 disciples to go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all the towns and villages in the Northern Galilee area. And in doing so, in sending out his disciples, he's preparing them for what they're about to um, see and encounter when they share the gospel, what will the responses of people be? And he warns them that some will believe and some won't. And he says, particularly in verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter-in-law or a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. You go, gosh, some hard statements right there. And by the way, Jesus, I don't think daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws need much help right here on the tension, but this is why you've come? This seems to be the opposite of what I've been taught. In fact, this seems like such a rough statement. It seems like it goes counter to the fifth commandment, that we're to honor our mother and father, not have this kind of weird tension of division between us. What's going on here? And everything you need to know about this statement is rooted in a context. Jesus is quoting something right here. He's quoting from the prophet Micah. Now, Micah is in your Old Testament, and Micah, what the background of this passage was, Israel was going into captivity. They were about to be enslaved by foreign enemies who would rule over them because of their idolatry, because they walked away from their first love. 
They left and abandoned God and they followed after the nations. And God says, so you want the nations to rule over you instead of me? Then the nations it shall be. And this will be your judgment. Always in hopes that they would repent and turn back to their first love. Now, when the prophet Micah came around and said those words, his audience was split on interpretation. Half the people who heard Micah's words were cut to the quick and they went, you know what? You're right. God, we have forsaken you. We have, we have exchanged the truth for a lie. We have worshiped the, the, creation, the creation over the creator. We have given ourselves away to the nations rather than our hearts to you. We are deserving of what comes our way. Would you be merciful to us? But not everybody responded that way. Many people heard Micah's words and said, there's no way God would do that. We are God's chosen people. He would never judge us like that. And the people were split. And they were so split, they were even split right down to the members of their own household. And Micah warned that mother and daughter and father and son and mother-in-law and mother, they're, they're all going to divide over this issue of God's truth. And the question for them is, who will you believe? Will you believe God and follow him? Or will you believe your family who disbelieves God and follow them? Who has the greater position of affection in your heart that you'll submit and surrender to? That's the context, which then Jesus quotes this passage here. And he's saying that the way that people respond to me and the gospel message is not going to be uniform across the board. My gospel message will divide even the closest of people. There are those in your own household who are not going to like you following me. And I'm here to tell you that is true in my experience. I was the first in my household to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I mentioned before, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have family that was following hard after Jesus. I was the first of them. And when I came home and announced that I had put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I had trusted in his work on the cross for my sins, have repented of those sins, and I want to give my life to Jesus from here on out because he's given everything for me. My mom, she was, she was happy that I was not doing drugs and I wasn't adding crime. Uh, even if you might be joining a cult at least you're not out on the streets causing trouble right now. So, okay. My brother looked at me, my oldest brother looked at me and he said, so you think Jesus Christ is the only way to God? I said, well, I don't just think that. Jesus said that and I believe him. My brother laughed at me and said, you're an idiot. What an idiot would follow after Jesus. Now, just to be fair, my brother later came to faith. So we're both idiots together right now. <laughs> My dad, when I was entering into uh, going into seminary and I was felt the, the call here into vocational ministry, I remember my dad called me and he said, when are you going to quit mooching off people and actually go get a real job? Like there's just not tolerance there. And that's, that's nothing compared to what I know other Christians are facing in other parts of the world where their very lives are on the line for following Jesus. But the truth is sometimes the greatest discouragement in the Christian faith can actually come from those who are closest to us, who disagree with our following after Jesus. And in those moments, if we're not careful, there can be a temptation to acquiesce to family's pressures and demands over Jesus's call to obedience. 
And this is where that test comes in. And this is why Jesus says the words that he says in verse 37. When he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Gosh, now that seems like a hard statement again. It's a comparative statement, by the way. Notice Jesus says, he who loves this more than this is not worthy of me. Now, what he's saying here is if if you were to compare the love that you have for Jesus with the love that you have for your own family members, if there is not a difference in priority of love, then we've got a problem. He says, if you don't love me more than them, then you're not worthy of me. I think it's interesting of all the analogies that Jesus would use, he used the family unit. In 21st century Dallas, that may hit or miss with half this room. There's some in here come from great family stock and you, this is personal to you. You know what it's like to really love your family. There are many of you in here who've come from broken families, jacked up families. And so the idea of loving Jesus, having to love Jesus more than your family is like a no brainer. Well, yeah, that's not real hard in my family. It hits or miss. But in the first century Jewish culture, there was no greater currency that you could possess than your family. And so this stung a little bit. See, in Jewish culture, you, you stayed, you lived with your family until you were married. There was no moving out first, getting an apartment, living with some college roomies uh, beforehand. You stayed with your family until you got married. And even after you got married, you would move into the husband's home with his family in a concept called insula, where you would just build on extra rooms to the house to provide for the extended family. And you would live there. And it was not only a place of love, it's a place of dependency. In Jewish first century culture, if you didn't have your family, you were a dead man or a dead woman walking. It was your livelihood. And so this is a big deal. When your own family goes against Jesus, you're for Jesus. And now you've got to make make a decision. Who am I going to follow? Even if it costs me everything. Now, That's a big deal. And that's what Jesus is speaking to here. So for Christ to say, you must love me more than anyone else you know. And and by the way, 21st century, just plug in whatever currency matters the most to you. The point is still the same. The essence of what Christ is saying is that your love for me must be supreme over any other rival love that may be out there if you're going to be a follower of mine, a disciple of mine. Otherwise, he says, you're not worthy of me. Now, what does that mean? That word worthiness there, as it's described all throughout the gospel of Matthew, it literally means to correspond to. It's a financial term. They would use it for weights and measures. You would attach a value to a particular weight of currency and you'd put them on the scales and the higher the weight, the higher the value. It it was something that corresponded to. And what Christ is saying right here, if your love for me isn't first and foremost amongst all other loves that you could possess on this earth, then you're not fit to be a disciple of mine. Meaning the weights and the measures just don't add up to who I am as supreme and sufficient in your life. 
Now, does that mean, just time out for a moment, does that mean we're not, we're not gonna struggle? Oh no, we're gonna struggle in this. I've been walking with Jesus for about 30 years and it is an everyday struggle for me. Any given day, I've got a thousand different things beckoning for my heart's affections right now. And every single day, I have to be reminded of who Jesus is how my truest good is found in him. The only reason Jesus can demand that our love, if I were to stand up here and say, I demand you to love me, that's idolatry. But when God himself, who knows that our greatest good is found in him and not in anything lesser, it is only fitting that our first and foremost love would be found in him for who he is and what he's done. It is a daily struggle, but his grace is sufficient for us. But what it's referring to here is the kind of person who's going to habitually cherish the things of this world in their heart without ever repenting, without ever letting those things go in their heart so they can turn to their greater love, where Jesus just gets pushed in the background. He's nothing more than the ornament on the hood of your car. He's not the engine. And so in this moment, that version of love doesn't correspond to the worthiness of who Christ is as God who came and gave his life because he so loved the world. Now, I want you to notice in this passage that we just read, it is a love versus love comparison, isn't it? It's not saying that it's bad to love anything else. It's just that Christ needs to be first. But this is, this is where we get the word supreme. Our love is to be supreme, greater than any other love uh, that we can have in our life. But I want you to turn over real quick, turn to your right there to Luke's gospel, chapter 14. And Luke is gonna take this same quote from Jesus in another setting that Jesus makes, where Jesus uses it in a more contrastive way. Anybody remember in junior high when you had to write a comparison contrast paper? Remember those things? Man. Well, Luke is gonna give us the contrast point of view of the same issue. In verse 25, great crowds accompanied Jesus and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes, after, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What in the world does that mean? I got to hate my family? That's taking it to a whole nother level. What is, does that mean that I wake up in the morning, I look at my bride, I look at Tiffany, I go, hey, sweetheart, do you know how much I loathe you, baby? Do you know how much, do you know how much I hate you? She's giving me the eye right now. Does that mean I look at my kids and go, y'all are so vile. You five little little demons. Is that what that means? That is not what that means. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not talking about, he's not using the word as we do in the 21st century. Now, when this happens, when you hit a word in your Bible, you're not quite sure how this is being used. We use, we employ a method of Bible study called the weight of scripture. You look in other places in the Bible and you go, how was that word used in other places? And we begin to see a weight given to this word of how its context plays out. And so what happens, uh, scriptures like Proverbs 13, if you don't discipline your child as you ought, you hate your child. 
Now, does that really mean you hate your child? No, no good parent's gonna hate their child. What it's saying is that if you really loved your child, you would actually discipline them when they got out of line. That's what love does. Love corrects, love doesn't placate. Love corrects, but because you're not disciplining them as they should be, it is essentially approving that behavior and that's as good as hating him. That's how it's being used there. Genesis, as well as requoted in Romans 9, uses the same thing when God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Does it mean God hated Esau? No, God didn't. He's made in God's image. He didn't hate Esau. It's another way of saying that I choose one over the other. In terms of who my covenant is going to go through, I'm choosing Jacob over Esau, even though the world would think it's Esau because I've got a higher plan. And what that word is indicating, it's strong language equated with a choice, a strong choice that's being made. It's God saying, my love for you, Jacob, is so great my choice of you is so great in this covenant, so strong that any other relationship compared to this one will look like hate. That's how, that's how big this is. That's, it's, you can't even compare the two loves. They're not even on the same page. And it's why Jesus said concerning money, you can't have one master and yet serve another. Why? Because you're gonna love the one and hate the other. It's impossible because they're incomparable. At the end of the day, you must supremely love Jesus and incomparably love Jesus above any other love. So when you put these two passages together, in Matthew, you have a comparison, love versus love. And in Luke, you have a contrast, love versus hate. When you put them together, Jesus is telling us, if you wanna be my disciple, your love for me must be supreme and incomparable to any other rival love that may be out there. Now, that's the first mark of a disciple that starts this series off that Jesus gives us. Someone who cherishes Christ in their heart and life so much that everything else pales in comparison. Doesn't mean there's not other loves, that's okay. We're commanded to have other loves. But Jesus is preeminent in that love. It's the same idea in the great Commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, your strength. Now, this is someone who doesn't just say they love Jesus, but they leave evidence all out there. It shows up in their time, their treasures. It shows up, shows up in their allegiance, in the affections of their heart. It shows up in what they worship the most. There's evidence throughout the course of your life that Jesus has the prominent place on the throne of your heart more than any other love. Now, question, how hard is that to do? As I already mentioned, it's really hard. This is going to be a day-by-day, constant examining and repenting wherever that tether from the love of Christ has waned and gone upon lesser things. And I think the first thing that we have to do as followers of Jesus, if indeed we are following Jesus, is we need to believe that Jesus, first of all, is who he says he is. It's, it's one thing just to put Jesus up with everybody else and figure out what I'm gonna love the most, unless you actually believe Jesus is who he says he is. If he is God, 
And he has come even when we deserved alienation and wrath, but he came because of his own love for us and gave his life to us on a cross, conquered sin, Satan, and death for us. And as a free gift of grace received through faith, forgives our sins and adopts us into the family of God. If he is who he says he is, then he deserves all of our hearts. And it must start there. Who do you believe Jesus to be? And if he is who he says he is, then our love must be supreme and incomparable. But as I mentioned before, our love is gonna be threatened for him every single day. And when you notice that your love has waned, and maybe some of you even come in here today and you've been walking through a real dry season, your heart just feels calloused and cold. It happens to all of us at some point. Um, Here is what Jesus himself says that we can do when those times come. Revelation chapter two, verse five. Listen, Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus who had at one point loved Jesus with a supreme and comparable love, but at some point they walked away from their first love. And Jesus writes a letter to them in Revelation two and he says these words and he gives three things that we need to do when our hearts start getting dislocated from our first love. Remember where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, what does that mean? Those three things. First of all, remember from where you have fallen. There has to be a time when we actually sit down and give thought, when did the affections of my heart fall off the track for Jesus? When was the time? Can you remember the last time that you felt the affections of your heart kindled for Christ, when you felt overwhelmed by who he is and what he's done for you and his rescuing grace? Can you remember what that was like? What was the moment? Can you trace it back to when your heart started waning from him? Was it a tragedy that happened in your life that may have broken your trust in God? Was it it some other good thing that came in your life that stole your affections, that convinced you to trade his love for something lesser? A good thing that just became an ultimate thing for you. Figure out where that was. And then secondly, Jesus says, repent. Go break up with that thief that took your heart. Repent in your heart of that love. Confess that to the Lord who's gracious and merciful, who's quick to forgive our sins and reestablish that heart connection with him, which then comes by the third way when he says, go do the deeds you did at first. Now, what does that mean? That means that you go back when you were once walking with your heart affections kindled for the Lord and those deeds that you were doing, they weren't done as a have to, they were done as a get to. Remember back in the day when you were walking with Jesus and your heart was fueled by him because you were overwhelmed by what he did for you, not just what you did for him. That was the motivation. Your serving him wasn't a duty, it was a delight. And Jesus says, go back and do what you were doing then out of the heart. That's the idea that you were doing with first, back when you were fueled by your first love. This is what John meant in 1 John 4, 19, when he says, we love because Jesus first loved us. That's the idea. If Jesus hadn't come and modeled sacrificial love, we would have never known what that love is. So we do that out of that heart motivation. We've done an exercise here in Northway all the way back in our village days forever called stealing and stirring. 
And I think this is a great opportunity this week, right at the outset of the series, to go home and do some introspection or do it in your gospel community of ask the question, what are the things that when you do them, steal your affections for the Lord? Maybe it's a bad relationship you're in. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a, a good thing. It's, maybe it's sports or some other TV show that you're watching that you've been binging on quite hard. And it's okay. There's nothing sinful in and of itself, but it's stolen your heart's affection from where it truly belongs. Um, figure out what that is. Do some inspection. We've got some elders doing that this week. We got one elder that's a massive Alabama fan and another one that's a massive Georgia fan. And they're having to wrestle with that right now. <laughs> Isn't that right, Corby? Uh, but go do some introspection. Find out where it is your heart is being stolen. But then ask yourself this question. What is it that when I do it, my heart actually gets stirred for the Lord? Maybe it's when you're, when you're in the word of God reading. Maybe it's when you're listening and, and singing uh, songs of worship to the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's when you're surrounded by other believers who are actually encouraging and strengthening you. Maybe it's when you're actually sharing your faith and you're reminded of the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit through you. Find those things and return to them and have your affection stirred for the Lord. Go back to the remembrance of who your God is and how much he loves you. One of the greatest things you can do is get back under the fountain of God's love for you to fuel you towards your love for him. You know, one of the things that is a helpful reminder, I've shared this illustration before here at Northway, but it's so powerful when I heard it because it just reminds me of the father heart uh, of God that he has for each one of us than Jesus. When I was living out in California, uh, this story became real. It's a story based in California. If you don't know, uh, Central California is the place nobody ever goes to visit uh, unless you're going to Yosemite. Uh, but it happens to be the breadbasket of America. I mean, 75% of all produce in America is grown out of the Central Valley of California. Go to your local grocery store today, look at your raspberries, your blueberries. It's gonna have a little town on there that comes from some town, small town in Central California. Well, there was uh, the story, there was a real life prodigal son story. It was a wealthy uh, orchard owner uh, in Salinas, California. And he had about 3,200 acres of apple orchards. And he and his family had, for generations, uh, groomed this land and, and, uh, and worked those, those orchards. And uh, one day he had one of his sons who knew that eventually his son was gonna take over this family business but came to him and said, I, I don't want to do that. I want to cash in my inheritance early. And the father pleaded with him because he was about to turn 18. The father pleaded with him, no, stay and work the land. And trust me, this will play out in the long game. The son goes, no, I, I don't want to do this. Can I have my inheritance early? And the father was merciful and gracious with him and gave him his inheritance early. And his son did what you can imagine any 18-year-old would do when they've got an unlimited amount of cash this is back in the early 1900s, by the way, jumped on a train and took a cross-country train trip all the way to New York where he thought he could make it in the Big Apple and uh, gets over there and sure enough, just starts squandering the money like crazy, living the best life now that he could possibly live until eventually he just ran out of all the money, got addicted to alcohol, was eventually homeless, was living out on the streets, digging in garbage cans until he came 
to his senses one day and just said, if I keep doing this, I'm going to die out on these streets. The only choice I have is to go home. So he begged enough money. He jumped on a train, heads all the way back, heading to Salinas, California. And as he was getting close to Salinas, he had this moment when he's on the train when he realized there is no way. What am I doing? My dad is never going to take me back. Not after what I've done, no matter how far I've gone. I've squandered everything. I'm the embarrassment of the family. There's no way he's going to take me back. So he pulls over, gets off the train in, in town, goes into a cafe, and he just sits down and he decides he's going to write a letter to his dad. He can't face him face to face. Sees one of the dad's workers in town, gives him the letter to take to his father. And this is what the letter said. It said, Father, I realize what I've done. I've wasted not only your money, but my life, which was important to you. I cannot even begin to tell you about the awful things that I've done. I'm so embarrassed. I'm at the end of my rope. I know nothing else I can do, but I just ask if I can come home. That if there is any way that I can work the land again, I'll even take the lowest spot, whatever it means, just to start over. So dad, I have just enough money to take the train that passes by our ranch in front of the apple orchard near the edge of the property. I'm gonna go by there on the train tomorrow at 1 p.m. If you would take me back, I would ask you to do one thing. Could you just take an old sheet and place that sheet on just one tree in the apple orchard? And when I pass by on the train, I'll see that one sheet and I'll know that you'll take me back. And if I pass by there and I don't see the sheet, then I'll know you haven't and I'll go on. You see, I just can't bear to see you face to face. I don't have the courage. I've done too much. I have no idea what's gonna happen with the rest of my life. So the next day he gets on the train and as he's approaching the apple orchard, he can't bear to look. He goes to the back of the train, just breaks down, starts weeping. And he asked an old gentleman who was on the train there, could you do me a favor? Could you just go up to the window and can you just look out there and see if you see an old sheet anywhere hanging on a tree? The old man goes to the window and he looks out and he says, son, I think you got to get up and come see this. And when he steps up to the window, he looks out and as far as the eye can see for five square miles, there is a sheet on every tree. If that human father can love his wayward child that much, how much more has your God loved you through Jesus Christ? Jeremiah, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. John never got over this love when he said, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Paul exclaimed, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Your God has loved you. No matter how far you've gone, no matter what sins you have committed, he has loved you enough to pay them in full through Jesus Christ. Come home. And once you have surrendered to him, how could he not be? And how could he not possess the chief place of residency in your heart 
where your love is supreme and incomparable for him compared to anything else. Oh, church, this is the first mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll look at mark number two. Would you pray with me? Father, oh, how much we need to be reminded of how much you love us. Before we can even talk about what kind of love we have for Jesus, may we sit under the fountain of your love and be reminded this day that you have spared no expense to come save, rescue, and redeem us. You have loved us with an everlasting love. So God, I pray, Holy Spirit, as you rekindle our hearts with that promise, would you help us to recalibrate, to reorient our heart around our chief affection, which is Jesus Christ. That from this point and to the rest of our lives, we could be known prominently for how much we love you out of the great love by which you've loved us. And we pray this, God, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.